Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Climate change is a controversial political issue. In particular, whether human activity is the reason the temperatures are rising is what is most often debated, although there is very little debate among scientists. President Obama has proposed limits and taxes on carbon emissions. Many conservatives aren't convinced man is causing climate change, and most oppose the president's plans. That's why it's unusual to find a conservative who supports a carbon tax, but one of our guests today does. He is Jerry Taylor, president of the Niskanen Center, who has written and speaks about the conservative case for a carbon tax. Mr. Taylor, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me. Also joining us is John Dernbach. He's a distinguished professor and director of the Environmental Law and Sustainability Center at Widener Law Commonwealth. Professor Dernbach, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Scott. It's good to be here. Always a topic we know that uh, the audience likes to weigh in on. So give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. If you have a question or a comment, that's 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Jerry Taylor, you describe yourself as a libertarian. What is your definition of a libertarian? Well, a libertarian believes that the government's main responsibility in this world is to protect the rights to life, liberty, and property of the American people. It's the credo of the uh, founding fathers of the United States. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the government today is a, is a bit of a distance away from what government looked like in, in the 19th century. And libertarians believe, however, that fundamentally government's responsibilities in this world is to protect our rights to live our lives as we see fit as long as we don't interfere with the rights of other people to do likewise. And so that's more or less what I believe, and that's why I call myself a libertarian. How's a libertarian different than a conservative? Well, conservatives tend to like using government power to advance a lot of things to better order society. For instance, they may not like government involvement in our economic arenas. They like to talk about low taxes and low spending and leaving us alone to use our pay as paychecks as we like. But they want government to order a lot of other things. They want to tell us how to live, what kind of books to read, who we can marry. Uh, and in foreign policy, they're more than happy to use the uh, economic resource of the United States and the private lives of its people uh, in foreign adventures that uh, a lot of libertarians would be relatively skeptical about. So in American politics, for the most part, libertarians agree with liberal Democrats, broadly uh, speaking, on civil liberties and foreign policy, probably agree more with Republicans, broadly speaking, on the economic affairs of this country. All right, let's talk about climate change. Uh, many conservatives don't embrace uh, the view that climate that the climate is changing and that human activity is behind it. Do you? I absolutely do. And in fact, one of the things I find absolutely fascinating about this debate are the scientists that conservatives offer up to justify the narrative you just gave me don't even believe that narrative. I worked at the Cato Institute for over 20 odd years, uh, and for most of that time, I was on the other side of this discussion. I was a skeptic about government intervention uh, to do something about climate change. But on staff with us was one of the leading climate skeptics of the country, a guy named Patrick J. Michaels. Uh, he and Robert Balling and Richard Lindzen and uh, John uh, uh, Christie and Judith Curry uh, are the most prominent skeptics that conservatives point to to justify opposition to something. But they don't even share their narrative. They accept that climate change is happening. They accept that industrial emissions and human activity is one of the most important reasons for why climate is changing. They agree that the world is warming. They agree that a majority of, or at least a significant part of that warming is due to our activity. Their argument is that it will not be as great a warming, say, as the, uh, as the environmental left believes. So 
they're what I would call lukewarmers. They don't question <laughs> the underlying science. They don't pick up snowballs and throw them in the United States Senate to argue that this is all a, a con and that there's just random variation in temperature or it's sunspots or something else. And so if you were to say, all right, uh, climate denialist, uh, one who argues that nothing's happening here and it's all some sort of uh, a liberal plot to uh, destroy capitalism, find me a scientist who argues that. You can find them, but it takes a lot of work. For the most part, the people they point to don't even believe that narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Durbach, you, uh, one of the things that uh, you, you wanted to, to discuss today is, and, and I have to admit, I wanted to have uh, you and uh, Jerry Taylor on the program for the exact same reason, is that this is a view, a point of view that you don't hear very often. And Jerry will be speaking at uh, Widener uh, later this afternoon at, uh, at 4 o'clock. But explain why you wanted to have Jerry Taylor speak. Well, the, the conversation about climate change, at least the public conversation about climate change in the United States really is is polarized around sort of two points of view. You hear people on the right, including every single Republican presidential candidate right now, and every Republican presidential candidate who dropped out saying that they don't agree with the climate science, all right, uh, basically denying the climate science. And then on the, on the Democratic side, every single Democratic candidate says just exactly the opposite. And so you begin to believe that the way the world works is if you're if you're on the right, um, that that's the position the the the, the uh, climate denial uh, position is the position that you need to line up with, and if you're on the left, the position that you need to line up with is the position that we should do something about climate change. Uh, last December, I was at a conference in Johns Hopkins uh, on climate change and public health, and 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 and, and Jerry spoke. Uh, saying a lot of the same things he's saying this morning. And I thought, wow, that's a point of view you don't hear very often. And for me, it's important because uh, sort of growing up with the environmental movement, you know, all the way back to the 60s, uh, one, one thing that's absolutely central to, 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 to getting it right on the environment is getting the science right. And, and uh, uh, if, if, if you're in a place where um, it's less important what the science says than what team you're on, then we're not really where we need to be. And, and, and I just find his perspective uh, very helpful. Well, you know, this issue, and, and I don't want to get into the politics too much, but this issue is a good example of how polarized the country is. Because just what you described, John, is you're either on one side or the other. There's no middle ground. And what I see from the report that uh, Jerry has uh, laid out is there is a middle ground. Well, I think so. The, the report I believe you're talking about is a paper I wrote called The Conservative Case for a right, Carbon Tax. Right, right, and which we'll be speaking on this afternoon. Right. The, the, the argument that we make is that climate change is real. It's being driven by human activity. And there is a why, there's a lot of uncertainty. Now, climate skeptics are absolutely right to point, about, point out that climate models are not particularly good. Uh, they're absolutely correct to talk about the vast amount of things we don't know about climate uh, and that climate change may end up being a modest and not particularly problematic development, but it also may may turn out to be absolutely catastrophic. There's a wide range of alternatives. So a lot of skeptics say, well, because there's so much uncertainty, we shouldn't act and throw away fossil fuels and try to remake the economy, right? Because there's uncertainty, and until we know for certain, we can't act. Um, So... And, of course, environmentalists look at it and say, no, because of the precautionary principle, we have to assume the worst. We have to, you know, we have to accept there's a wide range of damages. So in these debates, people have these different risk preferences. And it turns out there's no one right or wrong way to look at risk. But what's interesting to me is that when you 
have this very same conversation about other topics, people play a game of political musical chairs. So, for instance, uh, right after 9-11, Dick Cheney went on television. And if you recall, after 9-11, there was a, a flurry of interest about whether Pakistan did or did not have nuclear weaponry because there was a concern that the Pakistani government might either directly or indirectly allow that weaponry to fall into the hands of al-Qaeda. And uh, Dick Cheney uh, said on national television that if there's even a 1% chance that nuclear weaponry in Pakistan could fall into the hands of al-Qaeda, we have to assume it will happen and act accordingly. Now, this is amazing. If you, could you imagine him saying exactly the same thing, saying if there's even a 1% chance of planetary catastrophe that might follow from climate change, we have to act as if it's a certainty and, and, and plan accordingly? No, not in a million years. Um, so the problem here is that when we're, we're, we're so colored by a tribal identities. And we're so colored by our own preferences about policy that we don't think about risk very rigorously. If you're in financial markets, however you do, right, because there's no politics about this, would you ever go into a financial market and say, what's the most likely outcome of, you know, my investments this year? Well, the most likely outcome is you're going to get all your money in, you know, stocks are your best investment. So does everybody go into the market and put 100% of their money in stocks? No. So this debate about what the most likely outcome of climate change is, is where all the action is, right? The left says it's the most likely outcome is disaster. The right says the most likely outcome is a big yawn, a lukewarming scenario that's no big deal. But nobody thinks about risk that way in financial markets. They look at the full distribution of possible outcomes. And if you look at the full distribution of possible outcomes, there is a lot of risk associated with climate change. We would never act towards the risks that we're confronting in climate change in the same manner that we act in financial markets, ever. We would hedge. We would accept that there are risks and price them to the best of our ability. The fact that we don't know what the chances are of a recession this year, we can't put a number on it, we know there's a chance, uh, doesn't color the fact that we wouldn't act uh, by, by accepting the possibility that stocks might not be our best investment this year. And so this is kind of a long-winded answer to say that we too often color the way we look at these things by our ideological priors, by what team we're on. Uh, but I think if we step back and accept from a libertarian st- perspective, for instance, that how I feel about individual rights and liberties and how much I love free market capitalism has absolutely nothing to do with how I read atmospheric physics. These are in two entirely separate matters. And while we're all inclined to use motivated cognition to read things in a way that is most convenient for our own preferences, we should tr- struggle mightily not to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm hoping I can I can encourage. You know, I, I like the analogy. The only difference is, well, the big difference is, is that uh, with the stock, stock market, for example, you have numbers in front of you. You have history that you can base it on. With climate change, you're asking people to look into the future. They can't see it. They can't hear it. They can't. They, they, it's not tangible to to so many people. Now, you know, we may have people who can talk about that storm that we had last night and say, well, we've never had a storm like that in central Pennsylvania in February and say that's a good example of uh, the climate is changing. But you understand what I'm saying is that the that's one of the reasons I think anyway that we do have some skepticism out there is because you have people that just can't put their hands around it. No, you're absolutely correct. And it's even more profound than that. We're trying to assess what will likely happen from greenhouse gas concentrations that have not been seen on this planet since the Pliocene era. There, so we're in utterly uncharted territory. Now, there is something called paleoclimactic studies uh, where we go back and look at uh, ice core and whatnot, trying to ascertain what the climate w- was like in the Pliocene. And we actually know. 
uh, in the Pliocene where we had greenhouse gas concentrations uh, will soon be hitting uh, this century. Uh, we had temperatures that were four or five degrees uh, Celsius warmer than at present tells us where we are likely to go. We also saw sea, saw sea levels that are 33 to 130 feet above where we are today. That's not, not necessarily to say that this is what is in our future next week, next month, next year, uh, two decades from now, maybe even a century from now. But things do take time to play out. But that's how it looked last time. There's a lot of uncertainty involved doing it. But yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's so much uncertainty because we have no data points whatsoever to go by. There's a whole lot of room for people to have subjective narratives about how much risk they want to take. One of the reasons that the issue is so politicized is that uh, conservatives see this, this, this change as an economic one. They see if we make, uh, if we adopt a carbon tax as the president has proposed, and we're going to talk about uh, what you're proposing uh, here in a few minutes, but uh, that that plan will put the United States at an economic disadvantage, that people will lose their jobs and that this is all an economic issue rather than one that could be catastrophic to the earth? Well, there are two ways of looking at this. Uh, The first is to accept the probability that doing anything to reduce greenhouse gases uh, uh, in any significant fashion will entail economic costs. It just simply will. You have to increase the price of fossil fuels directly or indirectly to address this problem. And increasing the price of fossil fuels is going to have a cost. Now, what is that cost? Let's assume, for instance, we had a $20 carbon tax. That's a 20 cent increase in the price of gasoline. Gasoline prices were 20 cent more expensive than they are today about four months ago. Were people dying in the streets? Heck no. Uh, of course, somebody on the other hand could say, yeah, and exact, we weren't exactly solving the climate change problem either when gasoline prices were 20 cents higher than today. The fact is that the demand for gasoline, of course, is relatively inelastic, so it wouldn't make much difference. But when you're looking at the electricity arena where price... Uh, uh, where, where demand for various fossil fuels is, is more responsive to price, you get more of a response. But the point that we can make is like, yeah, okay, this is going to cost some money. If we were to make fossil fuels more expensive via a tax, then we'd have a bunch of revenue. What would we do with it? Well, one answer is to give it back to the American people through a rebate. And in fact, if you do something like that, you'd find that you could arrange for the, the uh, circumstance that more than half the people who paid the carbon tax uh, got more in the rebate than they paid in the tax. Why? Because they don't consume they don't consume as much uh, uh, energy as uh, someone at the main. So there are ways of dealing with this without bankrupting the American people. And if you're a conservative who's long railed about the fact that we don't have nuclear power, despite how attractive it is and whatnot, even though these are narratives I'm not particularly uh, persuaded by, well, we know how to address. Uh, uh, fossil fuel uh, consumption in the electricity sector. We build nuclear power plants. It's not beyond our capability. France is largely uh, a nuclear-powered economy. These are things that are not inconceivable. It doesn't mean we have to grow long beards and ride carts and uh, go into the Amish country for our future. I mean, we we can certainly operate an economy uh, without such a heavy reliance on fossil fuels, without changing things as dramatically as I think a lot of the right imagines. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today is Jerry Taylor, president of the Niskanen Center, who has written and speaks about the conservative case for a carbon tax. John Dernbach is a distinguished professor and director of the Environmental Law and Sustainability Center at Widener Law Commonwealth Law School. And uh, this afternoon, Jerry Taylor will be speaking 4 o'clock at Widener Law Commonwealth, the administration building, room A180. If you have a question or a comment, uh, we know that this is something, a topic that uh, you often like to 
weigh in on, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. All right, let's talk about the differences between what President Obama is proposing with the carbon tax and limits on carbon emissions and what you're proposing. First of all, how different is your plan than the president's? Uh, it's fairly different. Uh, the president is proposing a carbon tax, but it's an indirect tax. What he has done in the Clean Power Plan, which was uh, uh, forwarded by the Environmental Protection Agency last year, <coughs> was to <coughs> require emissions reductions from states. States get to decide how to go about that. So really, it's not Barack Obama's plan. The states will craft their own plans. But the way the rules are written, they strongly encourage uh, that states put a limit on the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions that come out of the electricity sector and then provide for a trading regime in which people can trade permits to emit. It's a, so it's a cap-and-trade program, which is likely to arise out of the clean power plant. Um, and that will produce a price on carbon that will be passed on to consumers. So it's an indirect carbon tax. But it's only on one sector of the economy, electricity. It doesn't apply to transportation. It doesn't apply to manufacturing or industrial activity. And it's a messy price where prices for emissions will be very different in, say, Vermont than they are in Ohio, than they are in Michigan, than they are in California, because you have a different amount of reliance on fossil fuels in those states. What I'm proposing is that instead of these regulations, I would say throw out the Clean Power Plan, uh, eliminate EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, throw out subsidies for clean energy, for fossil fuels as well while we're at it, and nuclear power. Uh, eliminate all the tax credits we have and all the regulatory mandates for this, that, or the other. And instead, put a clean price on greenhouse gas emissions that reflects the damages that they are likely to impose in the future. And once we've put a price on carbon for all sectors of the economy, wherever you might be, then allow market actors the opportunity to decide where, when, and how to reduce emissions in face of that tax. So under that world, if clean energy is a better investment, given that price, than say nuclear power energy efficiency, fine. Uh, I think a carbon, this is something that most economists on the left and the right absolutely agree about. If you were to take a poll of economists, doesn't matter whether it's Paul Krugman or uh, John Cochran at, the, uh, at Stanford, uh, left and right wing economists, they'd all agree, yeah, putting a simple price on carbon and letting the market sort it out uh, is going to get you far more emissions reductions at less cost than doing it through a ham-handed uh, administrative action like the Clean Power Plan. Mm-hmm. All right, so the big question is, how do you do that? I mean, we're going to kind of go one by one some of the things that you're proposing. But it, it sounds as if you, know, you described uh, ham-handed as what the administration is proposing and it would be much different uh, in state to state. But still, what you're talking about is a big thing. I mean, yeah. it, it would take big changes. How do you do that logistically? Well, um, I suspect that... On the center and center left of this country, there would be support for this. Uh, in fact, I've talked to a number of different environmental, uh, environmentally minded Democrats, elected members of the House and the Senate, uh, and they all tell me, of course, this is where policy needs to go. We don't, they'll never get enough greenhouse gas emissions and drug reductions through EPA regulatory activity. We need a carbon price. Uh, James Hansen, uh, who is a famous climate uh, scientist, in fact, was the uh, first uh, scientist to testify uh, in a vigorous fashion in 1986 about the threat of climate change, uh, usually associated with a Democratic, with a hard Democratic left, uh, agrees with this entirely as well. So I don't think it's a heavy lift to convince Democrats or environmentalists or Al Gore 
or James Hansen that this is a good route for policy. The difficulty is trying to convince Republicans uh, who are still skeptical about the merits of doing anything about climate. But it seems to me that this is not a discussion about whether we should have a carbon tax or not do anything to address climate change. We already are addressing climate change. We're addressing it aggressively through the Clean Power Plan, through all kinds of tax credits, uh, through a number of states which have their own cap-and-trade program, uh, through subsidies here, there, and elsewhere. Conservatives generally, and rightly so, do not like the economic costs associated with command and control regulation and with all kinds of uh, riggings of the economy through tax credits and whatnot uh, to produce policy ends. We believe in markets. We don't believe in regulation. And if you were to trade off all those interventions for a carbon tax, you are effectively deregulating the economy. You're not growing government, you're reducing it. You're freeing it up. And yes, people will pay more at the margin, likely so with a carbon tax, but if you rebated that money to the American people instead of keeping in the treasury, then you make people, for the most part, not everyone, of course, if you consume a lot of energy, you'll still net pay, but you'll make them whole. And that, that to me, is a, is a perfect deal. And conservatives should, by the way, want to hedge against the risks of climate. It's their planet, too. They live here. Their grandchildren are going to live in that future as well. And if we're concerned about risks, then a belief in liberty and free markets requires us to be concerned about our own property and our own lives. I mean, that's what government is instituted to do, right? To protect our lives and property against the threats posed by others. And if greenhouse gas emissions are threatening our, the potential for our lives and property, then it's government's responsibility to address it. And that includes even if you're a free market libertarian like me. To do a quick summary, if I was telling someone about uh, your plan, a quick summary or a quick way to describe it is basically you're, you're saying that uh, let the free market sort it out. Correct? Absolutely. If you put a price, let's assume we had like a 30 or $40 carbon tax to start the game. We know, All of a sudden, car, greenhouse gas emissions become expensive. And so people in the market are trying to avoid them. Uh, how are they going to try to avoid them? There'll be more energy efficiency, right? All of a sudden, energy consumption prices go up, so you want to consume less energy. You're not having a re- an agency tell you how to reduce your energy consumption. They're not passing regulations dictating this, that, or other. You make the call. You have now an incentive to invest in energy efficiency. You have an incentive to consume less electricity. If you're a power company and you're paying these taxes for the greenhouse gas emissions you're putting in the environment, you now have an incentive to look at low-carbon sources of energy that you might not have looked at before when the prices were different. So now the price of fossil fuels go up uh, and the price of clean energy, relatively speaking, goes down. And so maybe you'll be more inclined to look at wind or solar or nuclear or other technologies we haven't imagined yet uh, to save money. You give everyone an economic incentive to do the right thing when it comes to climate. And that's why this is better than asking the Environmental Protection Agency or state regulatory bodies to make all these decisions for us. They don't have enough information to know how to most cost-effectively go about it. Uh, And we know when government acts, it gets captured by political forces. So, for instance, we have an ethanol program, which is ostensibly about uh, conserving uh, uh, energy and reducing greenhouse gas emissions and all that, which really isn't about that. It's about giving money to farmers who are politically important in states like Iowa, where political where presidential one of the big issues, are. one of the big issues in Iowa, right? So when we when we task regulatory agencies and politicians to decide how to address a problem, what we are inevitably doing is mixing a lot of politics into it. But if we put a price on carbon 
and let market actors sort it out. We don't have to worry so much about all that political garbage. And we harness the, the, uh, all of the information and knowledge that market actors have that government doesn't about how we might best be able to go about this business. Uh, John Darbuck, uh, I see you nodding, not necessarily nodding in agreement, but uh, in recognition of some of the names that uh, Jerry is bringing up. Uh, and you're not here uh, to debate uh, Jerry or say whether his plan is a good one or a bad one, but your thoughts when, I mean, obviously you were impressed enough to uh, in, invite Jerry to uh, to speak, but uh, your thoughts overall? Well, I, I think everyone agrees that some kind of a price on carbon is an essential building block of where we need to go. I think everybody agrees on that. The reason we're having this long conversation about the clean power plan and a lot of stuff that EPA is doing uh, is that that appears to be, at the moment, the only way you can move the ball forward. I mean, the challenge really is, the challenge really is that climate change is posing really significant risks. It poses some significant opportunities if we handle it right in terms of imp- uh, building the economy, creating jobs, uh, reducing the health impacts of, 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 of other air pollutants that come with fossil fuels and all of the rest of that. And the question from sort of a governmental point of view from the Obama administration perspective is, well, what do you do in the face of that? You use the tools you have available to you. And thanks to the Supreme Court's decision in Massachusetts versus EPA, the federal government has the authority under the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And they've been doing it actually without a whole lot of controversy uh, and for, for, mo- for motor vehicles. They've, they've pushed up twice now the fuel economy standard, the greenhouse gas emission uh, uh, limitation for, uh, uh, for, for, for motor vehicles. It's going to be 50-odd miles a gallon for new vehicles starting in, in model year uh, 2025. Um, but but if, there was, if there was another way, and so the Clean Air Act provides a, a route forward. And that's really, I think, the reason the Obama administration is using it. If there was another route forward politically, uh, I think that would be uh, that that could be very, very attractive. And by the way, we're going to take some phone calls in just a moment. But uh, Jerry, and again, I'm not here uh, to promote a debate or anything, but two things that uh, John just mentioned that are part of your plan. And uh, this may raise my brows if it hasn't already. Uh, and you talk about the eliminating EPA's regulatory authority over greenhouse gas emissions and also repealing the corporate average fuel economy standards. But let's talk about eliminating EPA's regulatory authority. John just talked about the, the Supreme Court making a ruling in the Massachusetts case. But why would you uh, propose eliminating EPA's authority over greenhouse gas emissions? Well, that's actually what the Obama administration suggested in 2009 when they threw their uh, hat in the ring to support the Waxman market cap and trade bill. Uh, the, uh, the administration argued for legislative action to put a price on carbon because they argued that that is a better means of going about this task than turning the EPA loose. And so they went to the Republicans and said, let's put some program together so we don't have to turn the EPA loose. And in return for passing this national cap and trade program, which the Waxman-Markey bill tried to deliver, which is imposing a a price, putting a price on carbon in a somewhat different fashion than what I've described, but it's not that, it's not wildly different in concept. They would agree to eliminate EPA regulatory authority over greenhouse gas emissions. The Republicans didn't go along with the deal. The bill did not pass. And so the administration did what it told the, what told Republicans they would have to do. If you did not go along with us and help put, to, put together a price on carbon, 
through legislative action, then we will have no choice but to regulate via the EPA, which we do not want to do. We don't think that is the best way to go about solving uh, climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We want to use market forces to do that. But if you're not going to give us that opportunity, we'll act through the regulatory agencies. So I'm not, I'm not proposing an agenda that is at odds with where the Democratic left is. This was on the table no more than a few years ago. In my opinion, the Republicans should have picked up that challenge and improved. I, I think the Waxman Bill was deeply problematic, and I probably would have voted against it myself. But I would have asked for something else, and I think that something else is a price on carbon. All right, let's take some phone calls. Bruce is in Mechanicsburg. Bruce, you're on the air. Thanks for being patient. I just want to say, first of all, I'm not an ideologue or true believer. I find all ideologies flawed in some respects, and most of them have um, good points and bad points. But um, I regard the Republican Party as not being conservative when it comes to uh, oil. Um, A true conservative would want to save oil 50 generations from now. There are a lot of products manufactured from oil, and uh, true conservatives would want to be saved some of it rather than burn it all up and use it up and not leave any for future generations. But um, the best example I know of is the place that, you know, I can show that climate change has, is occurring is the top of Mount Mitchell, which is the highest point east of the Mississippi. And I've been going there since I was a little boy and was just up there a couple of months ago, and I've been watching the trees die. But the, when I was there five years ago, um, they had told us that the, um, the dew that forms on the trees is the acidity of vinegar. And I'd like to invite all the Republican candidates that don't believe in climate change to go to the top of Mount Mitchell, and you know we, we'll get some what I call Christ water, get somebody to collect water that forms on the dew, dew off the trees, and hey, hey, let all of them have a glass of um, you know Mount Mitchell by mountain water, and see how they like um, what the power plants are doing to to the um, the trees on Mount Mitchell. But all right, well, thank you very much for your call. You know, whenever we have this conversation, we do have people who want to be able to say that here's an example of why it's happening or why it's not happening. And that kind of takes us back to back to the beginning almost of, of, of the conversation, not what we can do about it, but if it's actually happening. Is that a, a, a conversation to have? Well, whether we like that conversation or not, uh, it's it's the main obstacle to moving forward uh, for a lot of conservatives. And again, through a great deal of my time when I was at the Cato Institute, I was on the opposite side of this discussion. And I would come on talk radio and give speeches arguing against doing something about climate action, offering uncertainty as a rationale for why not to act, uh, talking about some of the weaknesses in the scientific case. So I'm perfectly familiar with all that. But what but my, my opinion changed uh, simply because I found myself increasingly incapable of wrestling with the better arguments from the other side. But the reality is that it's not just a problem with conservatives. I mean, you can find this on the left as well in different policy areas. We believe what we want to believe. People are not reasoning uh, uh uh, actors. What they do is they're rationalizing actors, and they use reason to justify uh, their uh, preferences in this, that, or the other regard. So for Republicans, conservatives, they don't like government regulation. 
Uh, they certainly distrust environmentalists and where they would like to take the country. And so when environmentalists or people with environmental credentials say, look, this is a serious problem, they look at them and say, and what's the remedy? Oh, more government, more regulation? Gee, this has been part of your agenda as long as I've known you. This is just one more rationale to do what you've always wanted to do. I don't want to see government go in that direction. And I also have deep suspicions about where you'd like to take this country. Suspicions, by the way, that the left increasingly adds to. Uh, When they talk, for instance, if we were to cherry pick pages from Al Gore's book, Earth and the Balance, he talks uh, periodically in that book about making uh, sustainable development and climate change the central organizing principle of government. Well, most conservatives say, well, to hell with that. Central organizing principle of government is to protect my rights to life, liberty, and property. It's not to do that. I don't want to sign up for a cult. Uh, and, And he's not the only one who's used loose language like that, which has scared heck out of conservatives. But again, it's important to struggle mightily to separate what we would like to be true to be true with what is true and if climate change really is happening and it really is increasing temperature and it really is increasing risk and it really is putting the planet in jeopardy and putting our civilization as we know it in jeopardy uh, over the course of the next century or so then regardless of how we feel about individual rights liberties welfare policy or what have you it's incumbent upon us to act because we all live on the same planet You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today is Jerry Taylor, president of the Niskanen Center, who has written and speaks about the conservative case for a carbon tax. And John Dernbach, a distinguished professor and director of the Environmental Law and Sustainability Center at Widener Law Commonwealth. Jerry Taylor will be speaking at 4 o'clock this afternoon at Widener Law Commonwealth in the administration building room A180, if you'd like to hear a little bit more. If you have questions or comments, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. We have a call from Abby, who works for the Pennsylvania Coal Alliance. And uh, coal was one of the questions I had for you, but Abby, you're on the air. So I want to address what's missing a lot from this conversation, um, is that the U.S. is already reducing emissions um, from 2008 to 2012, according to Energy Information Administration. The U.S. reduced 23 percent, while China increased 30 percent and India 29 percent. I think there's a cost versus benefit to consider here when we talked about the the modeling being uncertain to begin with and then going off this economic cliff to to make good on some of these um, these negotiations that were done in Paris when other countries are not following suit. I also want to note that it's true that achievable standards have been set for transportation industry. Um, Transportation, according to the EPA, for greenhouse gas emissions make up 30, um, 27% and the electric industry creates 31%. And so what's happened with the transportation industry is they've been setting achievable fuel economy standards, whereas with the Clean Power Plan, the only way to comply is to transition away from coal. Um, Carbon capture technology is not commercially available yet, and it's a slippery slope to enact something like cap-and-trade. We see with the states in Reggie a 40% increase in electric rates on average, and then with AB32 in California, um, that, that didn't just stay on the electric generating units. That's transferred over to the manufacturing and industrial sector as well as the refineries. It's essentially a tax on all goods and services for that state. Hey, Abby, let me uh, kind of take this one at a time. But one thing that you did mention, I kind of want to question you uh, before we uh, get to our guest. Uh, you, you, you mentioned sequestration. And just for those who don't know, that is a plan that um, 
as you said, it's not commercially available, where emissions from coal power plants would be pumped into the ground or stored rather than into into the atmosphere. Uh, So just a little bit of background there. But one question I have for you, you talked about uh, how uh, the president's plan, even though the president does address coal somewhat, would there be a detrimental impact on the coal industry? Would there be jobs lost? Would there be companies going out of business, coal companies, uh, if what Jerry Taylor's proposing happens and what the president is proposing? Well, essentially what the president's proposing and what the what the proposed federal implementation plan is as well, um, what they're kind of pushing states toward is a cap-and-trade system. It's a cap-and-trade scheme, as what you're seeing with the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Um, any additional burdens on coal's biggest customer, the coal-fired power plants, would have detrimental effects to the coal industry. Um, these plants have already been hit hard with regulations. The mercury air toxic standard took off 20% of our customer base in Pennsylvania, and that was remanded by the Supreme Court this past June. Um, it's not just these one regulation from the clean power plan. It's layered effects that they've been dealing with. Additionally, Pennsylvania is a deregulated state, so they don't necessarily know for sure that with uh, paying the taxes and with the investment in new technologies that they'll be able to get their money back. You can buy from your supplier from any any number of different suppliers nationwide. Hey, Abby, I hate to interrupt you, but uh, you bring up a lot of points. I want to get our guests to respond. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, Jerry Cole, that was one of my main questions because Pennsylvania is a coal-producing state. Yeah, I'm glad Abby called. We, We actually published a study a few weeks ago uh, arguing why the coal industry would be better off with our plan of switching out regulatory interventions for a carbon tax than they would be under the clean power plan. So I don't believe that what we're offering uh, is is a net negative for the coal sector. Right now, the coal sector is in a death spiral, and I don't believe it has a very bright future. They're facing a very hard landing. And it's not just because of the clean power plan, which will indeed pose significant costs on the coal sector, but it's also because natural gas prices are eating them alive. And in fact, if you want to find, if you want to find one uh, entity to blame for coal shutdowns, coal mines uh, being uh, uh, shuttered, uh, demand for coal uh, dropping like a rock in the electricity sector, blame fracking. Go blame the guys who are going to be talking in Houston tonight who helped deliver the uh, natural gas revolution. I'm not saying it was a bad thing, uh, but I am saying that gas uh, gas is a bigger uh, uh, enemy for coal right now than the clean power plant. But that having been said, the clean power plant is almost the final nail in the coffin. I think Pat, uh, Abby is probably right about that. Uh, but a carbon tax allows a way out for the industry because you can get more emissions reductions at lower prices via a carbon tax than you can through regulation, which means less burden on the coal industry. And if the coal industry were to come along and help uh, put that bill together, they could find a lot of help from the federal government, uh, which they presently don't have now. More support for uh, carbon capture and storage technologies, assistance with the Black uh, black Lung Fund, assistance with their pension programs. Uh, the, the coal industry is in dire straits. Their uh, stock values have plummeted. They're now almost junk, bond, uh, junk stock status. Uh, their best hope is to come to the table and put together a deal, uh, I think, with a carbon tax. And I think that's their best way towards a soft landing. Because right now, as I'm sure uh, if Abby were still on the line, uh, she would acknowledge they're facing a pretty grim future. Let's take some emails here. Josh in York says, I agree that a carbon tax would be a clean, market-driven way to reduce emissions in the United States. But oil is a global commodity. With a decrease in U.S. demand, 
the global marketplace will respond by taking advantage of cheaper crude, leading to no net reduction in carbon emissions. How do we get around this problem? And he brings up, and something you do address, is that even if we did everything that you're proposing, the president is proposing, the United States is one country in this. No, that's absolutely right. That's a very good point. And back in my Cato days, and I was on the other side of this discussion, I would make arguments just like that. Uh, let me tell you why I abandoned those arguments. First of all, even while absolutely true, the U.S. unilaterally cannot do enough to address climate change in any significant fashion. That is absolutely spot on correct. There are other, however, there are environmental co-benefits associated with reducing greenhouse gas emissions that still make this policy worthwhile. In other words, it's not just the fossil fuels emit greenhouse gases. They also emit conventional pollutants, which impose a, a large health uh, uh, cost on this country. And while I know this is a narrative you usually hear environmentalists tell and not conservatives tell, the evidence is pretty strong on that point. So even if we were not able to induce any other nation to act, it is still something worth doing, particularly given the fact that the underlying reality is not a discussion between a carbon tax versus no action. We already have a carbon tax. It's there. We already have a, it's just done indirectly through the clean power plant. So we're already doing all this, right? We are already imposing a price on carbon and oil. We already do it. So we can do it cheaper if we can do it cheaper and better than we ought to, regardless of whether other nations act or not. But that having been said, the one advantage I think of going with a carbon tax is if you had border adjustments, let's assume you taxed foreign goods coming into this country as if they were produced here in the United States for their carbon content, right? So American manufacturers, have a level playing field, then for foreign nations that export a lot of goods and services to the United States, they are allowing the U.S. Treasury to capture revenues that they could have captured had they had their own carbon tax. And so there are a lot of economists out there who think the best way forward to induce international action on climate change is not to constantly go to these international confabs like the one we just had in Paris and try to negotiate something. Have Just put in place a carbon tax and have a border adjustment regime giving a very strong incentive to every other nation that does trade with the United States to impose their own carbon tax so they could capture the revenues that otherwise are being captured by the U.S. Treasury. One of the other parts of uh, of your proposal is eliminating tax credits for renewables. Uh, I'm sure that we have a lot of people out there, you know, who or who would say, "Well, oh, you can't do that because solar and wind cannot compete against fossils uh, who have had government uh, help over the years." Uh, if you don't offer those tax credits, there's no incentive for people to go to those renewables if there aren't tax credits. What do you say to that? Well, it's pretty hard to make fair 70, 80 years worth of history ever. <laughs> I mean, what, what is done is done. What we propose is eliminating tax credits for clean energy and for fossil fuels. Get the government in a position of neutrality and allow markets to sort it out. If it is indeed true what environmentalists say, the wind and solar uh, can compete right now if they just had a level playing field, well, let's find out if that's true. Let's put a price on carbon. Let's make sure that fossil fuel producers are paying the real costs, or that consumers pay the real cost of that product and see what happens. It turns out that when you talk to the trade associations in Washington that represent the clean energy industry, the American Wind Energy Association, the solar power people, uh, of course, they can't say much until they actually have a bill in front of them, right? Devils are always in the details. It depends on program design. But all of them tell me that, yes, if the carbon price, if the carbon tax is adequate for the task, then they would be happy to trade off all the tax credits they have today for that world. And they believe they can compete. And if they think that's the case, then that's fine. I'm not here to argue with them. And I, I think that certainly would serve economic efficiency. Let's take some more phone calls. Hugh is in York County. Hugh, you're on the air. Thank you. Uh, my biggest concern and question 
when we talk about these things and uh, people talk about regulation, none of these things would be happening if we didn't have some kind of government regulation. Uh, we have we have things locally here. Uh, Bruner's Island is a coal-fired power plant, and obviously we all know that a big part of our energy in Pennsylvania comes from coal-fired. Uh, they spent $800 million in putting scrubbers on this, but there's still no CO2 capture on this uh, on this plant that's down here. We have to have regulation, and we have to do these things if we're going to keep clean water and clean air. I don't understand why people are willing to trade the health and the lives of other people for money. Uh, I think I know why. Hey, Hugh, thank you very much for your call, Jerry. Well, if our, our obje- I, I, don't, I think I agree with Hugh. Our objective is to reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases so much that we provide a reasonable hedge against the risk of future catastrophe. Now, there are two ways we can do that. We can have the government tell us exactly how to go about that business, or we can put a hefty price on greenhouse gas emissions and then let market actors decide how to do it. That's all. That's, this is really all this conversation is about. If you think the government is better at telling people in the marketplace how to go about this business uh, through regulatory action, uh, fine. But let me tell you what that world looks like. That's the world we live in today. That's the clean power plan. According to the economic modeling exercises being done in Washington for the electric utility industry, for the EPA, and for other entities who pay attention to this stuff, the clean power plan is going to produce greenhouse gas emissions reductions that are virtually unimportant. They're not aggressive enough. Uh, They will be costly. So if Abby were back on the line from the coal industry, she's absolutely right. It's not like they're free. But the amount of greenhouse gas emissions reductions that will follow are trivial. They're nowhere near up to the task. In other words, and there's a reason for that. There's only so much we can do with regulation. So the the caller, for instance, Hugh, says, well, we need to have CO2 capture, like we have scrubbers to capture uh, SO2. The problem here is there is no such thing. There's no technology to scrub CO2 out of a smokestack. You can capture it and store it through something called carbon capture and storage. And the reason we don't regulate it is that it doesn't exist. We can't tell people to build things that don't exist in a commercial sense anywhere on the planet. The technology's there. It's not like we couldn't design it. It's ridiculously expensive. And we would have to store the CO2 for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. We worry about what would happen with nuclear power right, and and the long-term storage of high radioactive waste, we'd have the exact same problem when it comes to CO2 stored in the ground. How do we solve that? We don't entirely know for sure what that regime might look like. So there's no obvious regulatory answer here. If you put a steep price on carbon, you can get more emissions reductions than you can get through regulation, and you can get them at a reduced cost. And there's virtually not any economists in this country who disagree with that as a general proposition. Program design is always, you know, where the devils are in the details. But there's really not much. This really isn't a debate about, you know, paying money to pollute or anything of the kind. The question is how best we want to go about this business. Let's take another call from Porter in York. Porter, you're on the air. Thank you. Um, My observation is that as a uh, moderate Democrat, moderate liberal, whatever these labels mean, um, wow, this is an exciting discussion. I, I just agree with virtually everything. If I were a legislator, I would want to argue some of these things. But my question is, what's the holdup? Why is it that uh, the conservative side is just just 
fights this stuff. It, it seems to be to their benefit. Your guest points out how it could actually benefit the coal industry. Uh, we'd be creating jobs. We'd be cleaning the air. We'd be protecting the water to some extent and so on. It's just, is it, is it just because it's Obama, as it seems to have been in, in so many cases, or is, is there... Is there something else? It's just very frustrating to have this. All right. Well, thank you very much for your call, Porter. All right. Legislative form. He brought up a question that I wanted to ask before we get off the air. Yeah. Porter, thanks for that call. That's why the Niskanen Center is here. Uh, our job is to change public policy quite directly. So rather than being a think tank that just issues policy papers and tries to win a war of ideas, we're in the business of trying to change policy, which means we're in the business of talking to Republican legislators uh, and their staff and Democrats as well. Um, so my observation about what the problem is here. Most elected Republicans, way more than you think, understand full well what I'm saying. Uh, this may not be a popular message with the Heritage Foundation or with Tea Party organizations or the, or the base of the Republican Party. But amongst elected Republican legislators, including those representing coal districts, by the way, including those who are skeptical about how much risk really is in play with climate change, they understand all of this. This is not a discussion about whether we should or should not do something about climate change, because that 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 ship has sailed. We are acting. This is a question about how best to do this in the least cost uh, in the least costly fashion uh, that that can do the least amount of harm to the economy and be most friendly uh, towards a pro growth policy going forward. And they also understand climate change really is real and they understand there are risks, even though their base doesn't. They don't necessarily always say that in public. The reason they don't say it in public is they're afraid of becoming a guy named Bob Inglis. Uh, Bob Inglis was a congressman in South Carolina. He's a tremendous guy. I've gotten to know him reasonably well. And he forwarded a carbon tax bill uh, in 2008, and he lost a seat over it due to a Tea Party challenge. If you remember back in 2008, this discussion looked a little different. The Republican Party nominated a candidate for the president of the United States who was in favor of vigorous action to address climate change. His name was John McCain. Most, of course, that seems like ancient history. You can't imagine the Republican Party doing that today. But it did it in 2008. Since 2008, the Tea Party movement had captured the Republican Party, held it by the throat. Uh, it knocked Bob Inglis out of Congress for supporting a carbon tax. And since that time, a lot of Republicans have been afraid to say anything. And the main reason why is because of gerrymandering. Republicans are, for the most part, in the House. Most Republicans are in districts. They don't have to worry about running against Democrats. They have to worry about running against people to their right who challenge them in primaries. And for these people, talking about climate change is to talk about destroying capitalism as we know it and turning America into a gigantic concentration of Amish America uh, and, uh, and un unleashing government as an existential power in our lives. And for them, this is just fighting words. Until the Tea Party uh, uh, threat in the GOP is reduced, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, the Republican Party acting. Not impossible. It's not impossible to imagine it, but it's hard. Now, so I think that's really the main obstacle. It's not as if elected Republicans don't understand virtually everything I've been saying, because for the most part, when I meet with them and senior staff, including people you'd be stunned to hear about, they nod their heads and say, yes, but how do we get from point A to point B? It's a hard sell. And you're asking Republicans to embrace something called a tax. And they thought they were put on this earth to not tax, to cut them, not put them in place. So no matter how much sense it makes, it's a question of can they sell it to their base. Now, my answer to them, just to wrap this, this little monologue up, is that Republicans, the Republican base is a following base. They're not a leading base. For instance, Donald Trump is the big story in the Republican Party today. There was a very interesting survey done 
a few months ago in which they asked Republican voters how they felt about single-payer uh, single health care. And it was mentioned that Barack Obama supports single-payer, which isn't quite true, but for the purpose of the poll, it served its job. And remember, for eight years, Republicans have been screaming about Obamacare, socialized medicine. 16% of Republicans supported uh, 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 single-payer. When it was mentioned that Donald Trump did, almost 50%. They will follow the lead of Republican leadership if Republicans have the courage to lead. Yeah. Jerry Taylor, interesting conversation, president of the Niskanen Center. And Jerry will be speaking this afternoon. Where, John? John? Uh, it's at the administration building at, at the law school, 3800 Vartan Way in Harrisburg. John Durbin. 180 Thank you very much. I appreciate a great conversation today. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional.